In these podcasts, we uncover one chapter after another from the life of the Prophet ﷺ in an attempt to learn about him, love him, and better ourselves through his example. Immersion, mentorship, companionship, and tarbiyah. These are just a few of the things we offer alongside knowledge of the prophetic biography at Sira Intensive. Two weeks dedicated to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his noble characteristics. So this winter, join me in Dallas, Texas, alongside your classmates from all over the world to learn the story of the life of the best of humanity, the mercy to mankind, the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. Go to sirahintensive.com to register and for more information. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Inshallah, continuing with our study of the Shama'il Muhammadiyah, the prophetic personality. Today, inshallah, we'll be starting with the ninth chapter. Babu ma ja'a fi aishi rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The chapter about the Messenger of Allah standard of living. There are only two ahadith in this chapter, but it explains conceptually what we can understand about the standard or the lifestyle that the Prophet of Allah had. The first hadith of this chapter, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا قُتَيْبَةُ بْنُ سَعِيدٍ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا حَمَادُ بْنُ زَيْدٍ عَنْ أَيُوبِ عن محمد بن سيرين قال كنا عند أبي هريرة رضي الله تعالى عنه وعليه ثوبان ممشقان من كتان فتمخط في أحدهما فقال بخن بخن يتمخط أبو هريرة في الكتان لقد رأيتني وإني لأخر فيما بين منبر رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم وحجرة عائشة مغشيا علي فيجيء الجائي فيضع رجله على عنقي يرى أن بي جنونا وما بي جنون وما هو إلا الجوع محمد بن سيرين رحمه الله تعالى who is one of the كبار التابعين he's one of the senior scholars from amongst the generation of the tabi'un he's a student of the sahaba he says that we were with Abu Huraira رضي الله تعالى عنه and he was wearing two garments that were dyed dark red and they were made from linen. So he blew his nose, wiped his nose with one of the garments, used the edge of the garment to kind of wipe or blow his nose. And then he started to reminisce. He said that, wow, bakhin bakhin is a way of saying, wow, amazing. He said, wow, look at Abu Huraira. He wipes his nose with linen, and I can still see myself falling unconscious somewhere between the mimbar of the Prophet ﷺ and the apartment of Aisha radiallahu anha. A person would come along seeing me fainted on the ground and would put his leg or his foot on my neck thinking that I was insane, but it was not insanity, rather it was just hunger. So to explain some of the concepts that are mentioned here, first and foremost, of course, this is Abu Huraira radiallahu ta'ala anhu. We've talked a little bit about Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu in the sirah portion of our class as well, or, uh, rather in the khutbah today I talked about it. Abu Huraira radiallahu ta'ala anhu, a brief, very, very brief introduction, is from the tribe of Ad-Dawus. Uh, these were a people who accepted Islam um, during sometime probably either in the late Meccan or early Medinan period. An individual from their tribe, a very notable individual by the name of Tufail ibn Amr, accepted Islam, came to the Prophet and accepted Islam. When the Prophet sent him back to his people, he grew very quickly, grew frustrated with his people and came back to complain to the Prophet that these are uh, heedless people, they don't listen, they won't believe. Make dua that Allah, just, Allah eradicates them, Allah destroys them. 
And at that time, the Prophet made dua for their guidance and advice to fail, to be very gentle and to be very kind. Tufail went back and spent the next decade preaching to his people in a very kind, gentle, loving, compassionate manner, in a brotherly fashion, and making dua for them. And after about a decade of working with them, they had accepted Islam, pretty much the entire tribe. And he brings the whole tribe to Madinatul Munawwara, where the Prophet ﷺ now resides, to not only accept Islam, but also pledge allegiance to the Messenger ﷺ, and to learn the deen directly from the Prophet ﷺ. And amongst those individuals who came to accept Islam at that time was Abu Huraira. Abu Huraira, when the tribe returned back, Tufail bin Amr, decided to stay in Medina and take benefit from the company of the Messenger and Abu Huraira similarly stayed back. He didn't have any money, he didn't have a job, he didn't have a plan, he didn't really know exactly how he was going to get by, but that really didn't get in his way. They were, not the, they were the type of people where those things didn't get in their way. And so he spent his, the next almost three years sleeping in the masjid, sleeping outside in the courtyard of the masjid, eating whatever food somebody could spare here and there. He would go days without food. And he survived in this way for years, spent the last three years following around the Prophet ﷺ, observing every little thing the Messenger ﷺ did and learning all of that. And today Abu Huraira radiallahu ta'ala anhu has narrated the most ahadith from all the companions of the Prophet ﷺ in only three years of time, two and a half to three years of time. And that was because of his devotion and dedication. So this Abu Huraira, now that you understand who he is and why he would be in this type of a circumstance, so many, many, many years later, Abu, Hur, uh, Abu Huraira is sitting there. He's surrounded with some of his students. Amongst them is Muhammad ibn Sirin, the great scholar of the Tabi'un. And so Muhammad ibn Sirin says, while sitting there and he's wearing, Abu Huraira looks just, he, he looks really, really nice. Right? He's dressed extremely well. He's got these linen garments on. And the way they would wear two garments was, they would wear one as like a wrap, as the izar. And then one would be worn on top, kind of like a shawl. We've talked about this. And so it's made out of linen and it was dyed red. In some narrations also when it says mumashakan, that also refers to the fact that it had red stripes on it. So it's very, very dark red, almost maroon and black. And it has these stripes on it. And so while he's sitting there wearing this, probably teaching them, he takes the edge of the cloth as a person would and he basically uses the edge of the cloth to wipe his nose. And the second he does that, he himself kind of pauses and freezes. And he reminisces and he, you know, this is an, uh, almost like a, it's asma'ul aswat. These are almost like sounds, but they're used to, they, they're expressive, they have meaning to it. So he says, bakh, bakh, right? Which is a way that we would say, wow, or amazing. And so he says, wow, look at Abu Huraira sitting here wiping his nose with linen garments which were very nice, very expensive. And he says that I can still remember, I can see myself, that I still remember that I was getting up and walking in the masjid and the member of the Prophet and the hujra of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha it's probably not too different than the distance between this mimbar and the glass doors right here. And of course, if you've ever been to the masjid of the Messenger ﷺ in Medina, then where the Messenger of Allah ﷺ is resting, that is the hujra, the, the, the apartment of Aisha anha. And then of course you can see the mimbar where it is. So it's similar probably to this distance. And he says, I was getting, and getting up and walking and I hadn't eaten for so many days that I passed out and fell on the ground and was almost having a, was having a seizure. And he says that somebody came and what they used to assume at that time, first of all, they used to, they used to assume or they, what they thought was uh, epilepsy, they used to consider it a type of insanity. They used to consider epilepsy as like some mental disability or insanity, a bout of insanity. They didn't understand the condition, of course, back then. And when somebody would have an epileptic seizure, one of the things that they would do is that they would place the foot on the neck. I'm not exactly sure what the thought there was, but that's what they would do at that time. So he says, according to what anybody knew at that time, 
somebody came along and trying to help me placed their foot on my neck, thinking I was having one of those seizures, a bout of insanity. And he says it was not insanity. It wasn't even epilepsy. But it was hunger. That hunger was so severe that it drove me to this point. Why does Imam Tirmidhi rahimahullahu ta'ala bring this particular narration? It doesn't make mention of the Messenger wasallam anywhere. Why does he bring this particular narration in this particular chapter to demonstrate the standard of living or lifestyle of the Prophet wasallam? It's an interesting question. The Messenger of Allah wasallam, first and foremost, suffered through even more hunger than Abu Huraira went through. The Prophet ﷺ suffered through even more hunger than Abu Huraira went through. The Messenger of Allah ﷺ, however, this is obviously going to be redundant in its verbiage, was the Messenger ﷺ. What that means is that the Prophet of Allah ﷺ had patience of a superhuman level. Something that no other human being possesses at that level. Secondly, the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, particularly when it came to his difficulties and the sacrifices, as the Prophet ﷺ taught us, that these are deeds that are between us and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and they are better kept between us and Allah, that the Prophet ﷺ was very private about a lot of his sacrifices in this regard. People wouldn't know. People had no idea. One of the instances that is, mes- that is mentioned is that at the time of Khandaq, the battle of the trench, this hunger was so severe that they were tying rocks to their stomachs. And so they came to the Prophet ﷺ to complain that we have rocks tied to our stomachs and the Prophet ﷺ raised his shirt and some narrations say he had a larger rock, some say that he had two rocks tied to his stomach. Because he hadn't eaten for twice as long as they hadn't. But nobody knew, he only mentioned that to them to create a little bit of perspective to some of the kibaru sahaba, the senior companions. So number one, the Prophet ﷺ had superhuman patience. Secondly, he was very private about these things. That this is my sacrifice between me and Allah. And then the third thing is that just the physical strength the Prophet ﷺ possessed was such that it's unimaginable. No other human being would be able to tolerate what the Prophet ﷺ was able to tolerate. And the physical strength of the Prophet ﷺ is actually something that is confirmed. This is not just some type of fairy tale or myth about the Messenger ﷺ. It's confirmed through authentic narrations. The story about the Prophet ﷺ defeating the wrestler. The narration explicitly, it's an authentic narration, it explicitly mentions that wrestler was a lot bigger than the Prophet ﷺ. He was taller and he was larger than the Prophet ﷺ. He was a trained wrestler. This was his skill. This is what he did. And the narration mentions that when the Prophet ﷺ defeated him, it wasn't some fluke. The Prophet ﷺ lifted him up and slammed him. Like turned him over and slammed him on his back. Pinned him. And he did that three times. So the physical strength of the Prophet ﷺ has been observed and authenticated in a number of different narrations in a hadith. Alright, so the Prophet ﷺ miraculously, prophetically, possessed such physical strength that his level of sacrifice and the standard by which he lived and how he conducted himself and what he was able to tolerate is just, can't, we can't even comprehend it. Because a human being would die before they would get halfway to that point. So the reason why Imam Tirmidhi, and, and there's a couple of observances here or there, which give us a little bit of, a, of an idea. Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, after the Messenger of Allah many, many years later, when people would want to learn about the Prophet she asked, she was asked by someone, what did you eat the day the Prophet passed away? Just to kind of know, what was that day like? What was, this, what was the feeling? What was the sentiment? What was the tone? And so what did you eat on the day the Prophet died? What did you cook on the day the Prophet passed away? And she said, cook. Cook? If I had enough oil to burn a stove, I would have first actually lit the lamp. I would have first lit the lamp. She said, moons would go by and the stove would not be lit inside of our house because we had nothing to cook with. Forget about something to cook. We didn't have the oil that it took to cook the food. 
to light the fire. And she said that we didn't even have enough oil for me to burn the lamp. The day the Prophet ﷺ passed away, it was dark in my home. I sat that night, mourning the loss of the Prophet ﷺ in the dark. I couldn't even light a lamp. This was the standard of life of the Prophet ﷺ. Pertaining to Abu Hurairah ﷺ, Abu Hurairah ﷺ, there's a very well-known story about how the Prophet ﷺ, or rather Abu Hurairah is very hungry, and he's sitting at the door of the masjid. People are passing by. He's waiting for somebody to kind of take him home, invite them to his house to share dinner. Abu Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu comes by, passes by. Umar radiallahu anhu has nothing to eat at home, so he's very embarrassed. Salam, wa alaikum salam. Eye contact, nothing. Because he has nothing at home. What's he going to say, invite him to? To nothing? Abu, Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu passes by. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Eye contact. Nothing. Because Abu Bakr has nothing at home. He plans to sleep hungry that night. The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam approaches the door of the masjid. He sees Abu Hurairah radiallahu ta'ala anhu sitting at the door of the masjid. And the Prophet sallallahu smiles at him. <clears throat> The Prophet smiles at Abu Hurairah <clears throat> and he says that I know why you're sitting here, Ya Abu Hurairah. The Prophet takes him to his home. And he finds that a bowl of milk has been gifted to him. And so, Great sacrifices were made in order for us to be able to sit here in the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to be able to read this and learn this and talk about this. We are so blessed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we underestimate the blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That today you and I sit, alhamdulillah, by the blessing of Allah and learn from all of this but to think about those people and what they had in their hearts, what they had in mind when they were willing to make so many sacrifices to understand the value of this deen. That they were people who understood that people will come a thousand years later that will need this guidance, that will need this deen. And that we have to make whatever sacrifices we can to make sure that this deen is something that they can learn from, they can benefit from, that they can implement. So anyways, the story goes on that the Prophet ﷺ was gifted a bowl of milk and he sends Abu Hurairah radiallahu ta'ala anhu to go and get all the rest of the Ashabu Sufa, the Sahaba who used to live in these conditions. Abu Hurairah radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, I'm looking at that bowl of milk and the Prophet ﷺ is telling me, the Prophet ﷺ is telling me to go and invite 70 Sahaba. I'm looking at a bowl of milk. But I trust the Messenger of Allah ﷺ. So I go and I call everyone. There's a party at the Prophet Sallallahu house. So people pile in. They're lined up outside and the Prophet Sallallahu tells Abu Hurairah, serve everyone. And now my heart just sunk into my empty belly. And he said that I'm thinking because the one who serves is the last. The host, he's made me a host. The host eats last. So now I'm thinking, okay, I guess. So I start serving everyone. 
and everyone drinks from that bowl of milk. Seventy sahaba drink from the bowl of the milk. Until it finally comes, and there's still, the, the milk is still in the bowl. Everyone's drank, and the milk is still there. And the Prophet ﷺ says, Ishribi'a drink. And so I drank. And then he says, drink more. So I drank more. He said, drink more, and I drank more. And he said, drink more, and I said, Ya Rasulullah, there's no more room. There's no more room. And then the Prophet ﷺ drank the milk, finished it up in the bowl, Alhamdulillah. This was the standard of living of the Prophet ﷺ. So this is why he mentions Abu Huraira's experience, because the Prophet ﷺ's experience, something we don't even really fully know, and even if we knew, it's something we couldn't even understand. The second hadith, قال حدثنا قتيبة قال حدثنا جعفر بن سليمان الضبعي عن مالك بن دينار قال ما شبع رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم من خبز قط ولا لحم إلا على الضفف قال مالك سألت رجلا من أهل البادية ما الضفف قال أن يتناول مع الناس Malik bin Dinar, rahimullahu ta'ala, he says, this is a type of narration, uh, let me just translate, Malik bin Dinar, rahimullahu ta'ala says, that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he never filled his stomach with bread nor with meat, except ala dafaf, except in the situation of dafaf. So then Malik says, I asked one of the Bedouins, who speak a very pure form of the language, I asked one of the Bedouins, what does the word dafaf mean? He says that you eat with people. That you eat with people. Malik bin Dinar, rahmullah, just to explain here now, Malik bin Dinar, rahmullah, is a tabi'i, he's not a sahabi. This is a type of narration that we basically refer to as mursal. Alright? This is a narration that is called mursal. Mursal basically means that when a tabi'i hears something from a sahabi but then does not mention the sahabi's name and just mentions it directly about the Prophet ﷺ. This is not done maliciously. But there are certain tabi'un, there are certain students of sahaba who learn from their teachers, the sahaba, for 30 years continuously. Right? There are people like Alqama, Sa'id ibn al-Musayyab, Malik bin Dinar, these types of individuals who studied with the companions of the Prophet ﷺ for 20-30 years. And they studied from companions of the Prophet ﷺ like Abu Huraira, and Abdullah bin Umar, and Abdullah bin Mas'ud, and Anas bin Malik, and Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. Right? And so these are companions of the Prophet ﷺ that had so much knowledge from the Messenger of Allah ﷺ, and they spent 20-30 years in their company learning from them that sometimes they just became very used to, they became very casual because everybody associated. When you heard something out of the mouth of Urwat ibn Zubayr, you automatically knew that this was coming from Aisha. There was no doubt about the fact. Urwa was the nephew and the student of Aisha. So Urwa, anything he said, it came from Aisha, undoubtedly. So because of that trust and that, long, that long-standing relationship, that comfort that they had developed, they would sometimes just narrate directly. And so that's what he's doing here. So it's not a problematic narration, but nevertheless, technically speaking, in the science of hadith, it's called mursal. So he says that the Messenger of Allah never ever sat down to really eat bread and meat, except that he called people to eat with him. Another um, explanation or another narration from Abdullah ibn Abdul Rahman, he says that The word dafaf means a lot of hands. And means basically the same thing, to eat with a group of people. Imam Ahmad, rahimahullahu ta'ala, he says that إِذَا جَمَعَ الطَّعَامُ أَرْبَعًا فَقَدْ كَمُلًا That if food has four qualities, then this is the best type of food. Food that has four qualities is the best type of food. Number one, إِذَا ذُكِرَ اسْمُ اللَّهُ فِي أَوَّلِهِ Number one, that the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is mentioned before eating the food. Number two, وَحُمِدَ اللَّهُ فِي أَخِرِهِ That God is praised, Allah is praised at the conclusion of eating the food. Number three, وَكَثُورَةَ عَلَيْهِ الْأَيْدِي 
that there are a lot of hands in the food, meaning there are multiple people eating together. Number four, وَكَانَ مِنْ حِلٍ And of course it's halal, it comes from a permissible source. It comes from a permissible source. And one of the things I, I want to just kind of mention very quickly, because Imam Ahmed mentions this, for the salaf, eating something or drinking something that is actually haram, like khinzir or khamar, right? Like swine or wine. This is something that is like just, the concept didn't even exist for them. That's unimaginable. When he says, that it comes from a permissible source, he's talking actually about that someone's income. Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala in Zadul Ma'ad, he relates his quote from Imam Ahmad, and he actually says that what Imam Ahmad is referring to here is that someone's income is a permissible income, that they earn money through permissible means, right? That they're honest, trustworthy, truthful businessmen, or they conduct business in a truthful, honest manner, and they don't sell or buy or conduct any type of business that is not permissible. So the Messenger of Allah what was his lifestyle in conclusion? That the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he would sometimes go for days without eating in food. Hunger and starvation was just a part of one's daily routine. Not because it wasn't possible. The Messenger of Allah is the most brilliant man that ever walked the face of this earth. He's the most genius human being to ever exist. The Prophet of Allah could have conquered the world if he had put his mind to that. And he didn't even have to put his mind to it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him the choice. The Prophet talks about it in the narration. He was given the choice and the opportunity to become a king. And the Messenger of Allah said, No. He said that I want to be with the people. I want to live with the people, serve the people, be with the people. He said, I sit as a slave sits. I eat like a slave eats. Simple, humble. I walk like a slave walks. I ride a donkey as slaves do. Simple man. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, the famous dua of the Prophet وسلم, there's some questions about the authenticity of the dua, but nevertheless, just in the realm of virtues and fada'il, and as a dua, the scholars permit the, the dua that the Prophet وسلم, said, Allahumma hini miskina, wa amitni miskina, wa ahshunni yawm al-qiyamati fi zumrat al-masakin. Oh Allah, allow me to live in the company of poor, humble people. And when I die, allow me to leave this world while in the company of poor, humble people. And on the day of judgment, I want to stand with the poor and the humble people. That was the lifestyle of the Messenger And even when the Prophet did get anything, then he never forgot other people. Then he shared it with other people. I'll take the questions afterwards. Hadith number 10, uh, chapter number 10. Now it's a little bit of a shifting of gears, changing of topics. But it's very brief, not very uh, detailed, or not very complicated, I should say. Babu fi khuffi Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The chapter about the socks of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. There are two ahadith here. The first one, qala haddathana hannad ibn sari, qala haddathana wakir an dalham ibn salih an. Hujayr ibn Abdullah, an ibn Burayda, an abihi, an al-Najashi, ahdal al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam khuffain. Ahdal al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam khuffaini aswadaini saadhajaini. Falabisahuma thumma tawadda'a wa masaha alayhima. Ibn Burayda, rahimahullahu ta'ala, relates from his father, Burayda, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, that An-Najashi gifted or sent as a gift to the, for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam two socks that were made, two socks that were made from plain black leather. And the Prophet sallallahu would wear them and he would make, when he would make wudu, he would wipe over them. So a couple of things here to explain. First and foremost, An-Najashi, who is An-Najashi? Of course, the students at Sina Intensive, you're familiar with this. 
uh, and Najashi is the king of Abyssinia, East Africa, who had given refuge to Muslims and also had accepted Islam and then maintained a long distance relationship with the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam where he would communicate with him, send gifts for him and keep tabs on everything that was going on in Mecca and later on in Medina. And he was a very devout believer and he died on Iman. His name was Ashama and he was a believer. So this Najashi, he sent some gifts to the Prophet Sallallahu and amongst the gifts that he sent for the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu were khufain. Now the word khuf, why did I translate it as leather socks? Somebody could have that question, right? Because if you maybe looked up the word khuf in a more modern dictionary, it would just say socks, right? Sock is khuf. The, in classical Arabic, if you go and you look up the word in the classical Arabic lexicon, the word for the word khuf translates as a sock that was made out of leather. Before I explain the concept of that, the word for normal socks in the classical Arabic language was the word jawrab. They would use the word jawrab, jawrabain, is how they would refer to socks that were made out of cloth or cotton or wool or material, other types of material. Socks made out of leather specifically were called khuf. Now, first and foremost, generally speaking, in that culture, why are socks being made out of leather? Right, that sounds very intense. So why are their socks made out of leather? Obviously because of durability. Durability. We have to understand that things just were not mass produced the way they are today. The way we mass produce things, all types of material, is very unnatural, right? That's why it's not shocking to see that people behave in a very unnatural way. The world is, you know, so to speak, falling apart. And this is not a very natural way of mass producing of things. And so they, they didn't mass produce these types of things. And so socks made out of cotton or other material would get worn out and would tear and fall apart and so they would make these socks out of leather so that they were more durable. So that's the first thing. That's why they actually existed. Now, the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, particularly, the Prophet particularly he himself, he was fond of these leather socks. Again, because of the durability of it. And number two, because in the fiqh, uh, the, the, the practical rulings, that the Messenger of Allah taught us is that socks made out of leather have a very special ruling attached to them. And the special ruling that is attached to them is that when you have made wudu and you put those socks on, then at that time, if you put them on in a state, in a condition of tahara, the Prophet of Allah allowed, he permitted, he said, that then when you have to make wudu again, and you still have those socks on, you actually don't have to remove the socks, but you can just simply wipe over the socks. So this special ruling was then created by the Prophet or rather implemented and taught to us by the Messenger of Allah So that's the concept of the khuf. And so mashul khuf, wiping over the leather sock, not only that, but it's, it's, another, uh, it's another issue that is mutawatir, it has tawatur. I explained the concept of tawatur to you earlier as well. Tawatur is something that is narrated by such a large number of sahaba, and then obviously in every generation following afterwards, that it's unimaginable, inconceivable, that this could have any type of inconsistency or irregularity within the understanding of this concept. So it is a concept that is mutawatir. All right, so it's, it's conclusive. And that's why Abu Hanifa rahimahullahu ta'ala, when he was even asked about what is the identity or what is the understanding of Ahlu Sunnah wal Jama'ah, then Abu Hanifa rahimahullahu ta'ala said, Nufadilu Shaykhain, we virtue, we give virtue, we honor Abu Bakr and Umar, radiallahu ta'ala anhuma, unlike the Rafida, the Rawafid. And then he said that, Wanuhibbul Khatanain, and we have the greatest of love for the two son-in-laws of the Prophet Uthman and Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhuma, unlike the khawarij, the rebels. And then thirdly, he said, وَنَرَى الْمَسْحَ عَلَى الْخُفَّينَ Or وَنَرَى جَوَازَ الْمَسْحِ عَلَى الْخُفَّينَ We view that it is permissible to wipe in your wudu over leather socks. 
Now, why is such, somebody could say, why, why is such a small or uh, such an isolated issue of tahara a part of the identity of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah? It's not so much this issue itself, but more so what Abu Hanifa is saying is that this is mutawatir. So recognizing and believing th in things that are established through tawatur, that irrefutable uh, proof, then that is a position of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. That we do not reject things that have tawatur in them. Alright, so this is the first hadith about the socks. And so the, the description of the socks, excuse me, was that they were black, so it was black leather. And then when it says, Sathajain, Sathaj, basically just means that it didn't have any type of imprint or drawing or any type of pattern on it. It was not adorned, it was not decorated um, in any way. Some, some commentators of, of, the, of hadith of the Shama'il, they actually say that the word Sa'adaj means that it didn't have fur, like it didn't have the hair of the animals still on there. That it was leather that was cured, that was tanned to the point where that it didn't have any hair, like loose hair to it, but it was completely tanned to the point where it was solid. All right, it was smooth at this point. The tanning of leather, the process, that it was tanned to the point where it had become smooth. And some say that a lot of times when they would have things that were made from leather as a decoration or as an adornment, what they would do is they would imprint different designs onto the leather. Right, they would carve certain designs into the leather, but this did not have anything like that because the Najashi knew that the Prophet of Allah وسلم, like the prophets of the past, a Najashi was actually a scholar. He was a scholar of the previous scriptures. He was a Christian scholar. He's a very, very well-read and educated man. And he knew a lot about Isa alayhi salam. And so he knew from the sunnah of the prophets of the past that they are simple people. And so because of that, he sent simple materials for the Prophet The second hadith, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا قُتَيْمَةُ بْنُ سَعِيدٍ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا Yahya bin Zakaria ibn Abi Zaida عن الحسن بن عياش عن أبي إسحاق عن الشعبي قال قال المغيرة بن شعبة رضي الله تعالى عنه أهدى دحية للنبي صلى الله عليه وسلم خفين فلبسهما وقال إسرائيل عن جابر عن عامر وجبة فلبسهما حتى تخرقا لا يدري النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم أذكي هما أم لا قال أبو عيسى رحم الله تعالى وأبو إسحاق هذا هو أبو إسحاق الشيباني وإسمه سليمان. So what I read there at the end is not in your text, but it's just an extra comment of Imam Tirmidhi on the chain of narration itself. So the second narration, Mughira ibn Shu'ba. Mughira bin Shu'ba is of course a very notable companion of the Prophet ﷺ. And when the Prophet ﷺ would travel, he would serve as like a personal assistant to the Prophet of Allah ﷺ. So he says, Dihya, Dihya al-Kalbi, radiallahu ta'ala anhu was a companion of the Prophet ﷺ, a sahabi who was known to be very dashing, very, you know, handsome. And of course we read about the fact that Jibreel ﷺ, when he would come to visit the Prophet ﷺ, he would oftentimes assume the look and the features of Dihya radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And so he says that Dihya radiallahu ta'ala anhu had gifted to the Prophet ﷺ two leather socks. Like he had gifted to him leather socks. And the Prophet ﷺ used to wear them. Then Imam Tirmidhi brings another narration, another chain from another route. And that adds that Dihya radiallahu ta'ala anhu had gifted to the Prophet ﷺ not just leather socks, but he also gifted to him a overcoat. He gave him an overcoat along with leather socks. And so the Prophet ﷺ wore the leather socks and he was so fond of them, especially towards the final years of the Prophet ﷺ's life, when it would be very cold sometimes in the desert, in the winter time at night. And so the Prophet ﷺ would make wudu before, you know, maybe earlier in the day or in the evening before nighttime set in, and he would put the leather socks on. So that's why, that way at night when he would wake up for his qiyam, for his tahajjud, and he would have to make wudu, and it was very, very cold in the desert in the wintertime, where he wouldn't have to wash his feet, because he was a lot older now. So the Prophet ﷺ would be able to make masah. So he used to use them so much, 
that they started getting wear, worn out to the point that they started to tear, they started to rip. And he mentions this to say that the Prophet was so fond of them and he used to use them to the point where they tore. Then he gives a little bit of a comment. Some of the scholars of hadith who have reviewed the work of the Shama'il, they say that this little comment here at the end is idraj min al-rawi. This is mudraj. Alright, what that basically means is that this is an interjection, this is extra commentary from the narrator, and is not necessarily confirmed, of course not from the Prophet ﷺ, or even from Mughira bin Shu'bah. That this is not confirmed from the actual source of the information, but it is some extra commentary from a narrator later on. He says that the Messenger of Allah ﷺ did not know whether the animal from where these leather socks had been made that the, the hide or the, the skin of the animal that they had been produced from, whether that animal had been properly sacrificed, had been properly slaughtered according to Islamic law or not. Alright, so first and foremost, even the authenticity and the, 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 uh, the authenticity of that comment itself is questioned or is contested. So it's not for certain that this is an authentic comment. That's the first thing. So it's very deeply contested, all right? And it's something that is discussed a lot. One of the most famous commentators on the Shama'il of the Prophet ﷺ is a scholar by the name of Alama Bajuri. Alama Bajuri was a faqih of the Shafi'i Madhab. And, and so in the Shafi'i, so there's a difference of opinion. So Imam Bajuri completely rejects this extra comment as being something that is completely unfounded and cannot be authenticated or verified by any means. So he completely rejects the comment altogether. However, some of the scholars do go ahead and accept the comment. And overall, what is the problem with the comment in and of itself? Well, because it involves an issue of fiqh. It involves a legal issue. The legal issue is this. That we know that the meat of an animal, or the, any body part of the animal, right, becomes permissible after an animal has been cut, has been sacrificed properly. Alright? That that is a requirement to make the body and the, you know, utilizing the body of the animal, especially for food, um, that's a requirement for making it permissible. The question then begs that to use the skin of an animal, leather, to use the, the hide of an animal, is it a requirement that the animal was sacrificed properly or not? Is that not a requirement? That's an issue of difference of opinion. Imam al-Shafi'i rahimahullah ta'ala says it is a requirement. The hide, the, the, the skin of the animal is not permissible if the animal was not slaughtered, was not cut properly. Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah ta'ala, based on some narration from the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, and there are some weak narrations as well, but there's also uh, many narrations from the companions, the opinions of the companions, where, they, where it talks about that, uh, right? And dibagh, dibagha basically refers to al-madbugh. It refers to the tanning of the hide of the animal. The process of tanning, where you take the skin of the animal after it's been removed, right, and you stretch it out and you apply, you know, grease or whatever it may be to it, and then you leave it under the sun and allow it to basically dry up under the heat in the sun. That is called tanning of the hide, tanning of the skin. That there are some narrations which say that the tanning of the hide or the skin of an animal makes it permissible. So even if the animal was not sacrificed or cut properly, that the tanning process itself makes at least the skin permissible to use. Alright? And that's the position of Abu Hanifa. So based off of that, that creates a little bit of a discussion here. But nevertheless, one of the narrators does comment saying that the Prophet ﷺ did not know whether that animal... And the reason why he did not know that was because Dihya radiallahu ta'ala anhu, this gift that he brought to the Prophet sallallahu that overcoat and those leather socks, he had brought them from Rome. He had brought them from Rome. It was the Jubba Rumiya that we learned about in the previous session, the Roman overcoat that the Prophet sallallahu would wear. So he had brought it from Rome. 
And a lot of, in a lot of different places, they were not in the habit at that time already to sacrifice the animal or to cut the animal according to Islamic uh, requirements. So that's why the commentator says that there was no way for the Prophet ﷺ to really know whether the skin from which this, uh, these socks were made, that the hide of the animal from which these socks were made, there was no way for the Prophet ﷺ to be able to confirm whether it was properly sacrificed or not. And therefore, he, the, one of the narrators assumes this. And then it would also support that other opinion and some of the opinion of the Sahaba that the tanning of the height of the animal in and of itself purifies the skin of the animal. But the contention from the other side is who do say that no, it is still necessary for the animal to be sacrificed properly in order for the leather to be permissible to use as well. They say that we can't just assume that because it came from somewhere else and it was given as a gift to the Prophet ﷺ, that the Prophet ﷺ wouldn't know whether it was sacrificed properly or not. Because if in fact that is impermissible to wear, how would the Prophet ﷺ be able to figure out that this is not permissible to wear and I should not wear it? How would that happen? Exactly. Jibreel ﷺ would come and tell the Prophet ﷺ, don't wear it. Because messengers of God, Prophets of Allah are protected by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from engaging in any type of impermissible conduct or behavior. And there are multiple instances, even before Nubuwa, let alone after Nubuwa, after Prophethood, there are multiple instances in which Jibreel alayhi salam would come and warn the Prophet about a particular issue. One of the things we'll read about in the following chapter, one time the Messenger of Allah was wearing his shoes and he was leading prayer. And the Prophet of Allah removed his shoes. And so all the Sahaba basically seeing the Prophet they all also removed their shoes. Right? In following the example of the Prophet And he said, no, I removed my shoes because Jibreel came and told me that there was some najasa, that there was some filth on the sole, on the bottom of my shoe. It had gotten on there. Maybe something from the street or whatever. And so he told me, there's something on your shoes, make sure you take it off. But if your shoes do not have anything impure on it, you didn't have to take them off, the Prophet said. But that's how Jibreel would immediately warn the Prophet Allah would send Jibreel to the Prophet And that brings us to chapter number 11, which I had intended to do today, but is obviously not going to happen. Khair, inshallah. Tomorrow. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to practice everything that was said and heard. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to make the most of this opportunity and to learn from the life and the guidance of the Messenger Subhanallah wa bihamdihi subhanakallahu bihamdik nashhadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk Questions? Yes. Right, so sister's asking the question that this level of you know, hunger and um, difficulty, was that something that was an ongoing thing or was it something maybe progressive that kind of developed over time as more and more you know, sacrifices were made? That was something that kind of developed over time. Because the Prophet of Allah obviously was so preoccupied with the mission of prophethood, he was not able to conduct business or work anymore. He had dedicated and devoted himself to this. And over time, while continuing to support the cause and the mission, you know, they had basically exhausted whatever funds that they had. And from the years of boycott on forward, going from there, this was basically their situation. Yes. Prioritization. So this is asking the question that it was possible for the Prophet and the Sahaba to be able to earn more and to be able to make a lot or whatever the case, then you know what's the wisdom or what's the understanding behind the Prophet choosing this? Um, it was an issue of prioritization. That every second of the life, every breath of the Messenger is so valuable and such an opportunity for all of humanity and mankind that basically all of that time was used for something more beneficial. 
So the Prophet ﷺ, again, the lesson from that isn't necessarily that we all deprive ourselves to the point of starvation, but the lesson from that is prioritization. We can all prioritize a little bit better in our lives. And, and what we give, how much time we give to what. We can all kind of reconsider some of our choices and our priorities. Yeah, it's kind of a complex issue, it's okay. Just leave it. No, not, not to say you can't understand it, it's just I'm going to get super nerdy on you guys and it's not going to be fun. Yes? Difference of opinion. The sister's asking, obviously, the question that pretty much I'm pretty sure everybody else that is raising their hand, they're asking, is about the permissibility of wiping over socks that are not from leather. Um, again, I'm not going to get into a, a lot of detail about the issue here, obviously, because it's a whole topic and issue in and of itself. And again, not to be disrespectful, you know, um, all of y'all are probably a lot more, you know, brighter and more intelligent than myself. Um, but... It's also just understanding, and we understand this in academics, in any other field or science or area of study, there are prerequisites usually to any conversation, right? There's a certain level of arithmetic you need to know before you can progress to algebra, and so on and so forth, right? Um, so similarly, there's usually some type of prerequisites in order to have the really complex full-scale conversation, but to summarize it, and to just share with you just some of the opinions on the issue. There's a difference of opinion on the issue. Um, there are some narrations which do mention. The primary thing is the fact that the Prophet ﷺ, he himself, was never seen in his lifetime wiping over socks that were not made from leather. That were non-leather. He himself was never seen doing it. And that sort of becomes the issue now. However, we do find some narrations such as Ali bin Abi Talib عنه, and some other companions that they did either wipe over non-leather socks or talked about it. So there's a little bit of a difference of opinion on the issue. Um, but overall, what I would say is that it is generally permissible. Some scholars do a lot for it. Some scholars are more strict about it. But it's definitely not um, a seriously contentious issue. It's more of a choice. Yes, Muhammad. Yes. For travel. Absolutely. So the brother is asking the question that this wiping over masah over the socks, using that as a um, as a rukhsa, as kind of a concession, that that is permissible even while at one's residence. And what the Prophet ﷺ taught us about that in the narration is that if somebody is at their residence, after putting on the socks, they are allowed to wipe over them for a duration of a day and a night, yawmun wa layla, 24 hours. And when somebody is actually traveling, then they are allowed to wipe over it for a duration of thalathata ayyamin wa layaliha, three days and three nights, 72 hours. Abdullah? Okay, uh, two questions from previous uh, chapter. Number one is that, um, what about the issue, because we talked about clothing, what about the, we saw the narrations where it talks about the, the qamis of the Prophet ﷺ falling to mid-shin level, um, above basically his ankles, and then of course we have the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, which talks about the severity or the seriousness of men having clothing below their ankles. So what's exactly the ruling on that? That is something the Prophet ﷺ in one general narration, he generally reprimands or you know, uh, advises against. However, and then in another narration, so again, this goes back to that issue that I talked about in this, the study or the inter science of interpreting a hadith, is that it's very important to combine and reconcile all the different narrations on the topic. So that's where we come across the authentic narration of Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu, that Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu had his um, pants or izar, the wrap that he would wear, below his ankles, it was kind of low. And Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala asks the Prophet sallallahu what about this, O Messenger of Allah? And the Prophet sallallahu actually tells him, he goes, no, 
Because you do not do it out of arrogance. Min al-khuyala. You do not do it out of boasting and arrogance. Alright? So this is an issue. Um, we were going through this with the Qalam students. Um, this is an issue of in usul al-fiqh. This is referred to as the extraction of the illa. Illatul hukum. What is the basis of the ruling? Illatul hukum. Alright, what is the basis of the ruling? There are multiple ways to extract the basis of a ruling. Illatul hukum. And the easiest and the first and the most obvious way to arrive or to extract the basis of the ruling is when Allah or the Messenger of Allah actually state the basis of the ruling themselves. And that's what the Prophet does here. That he himself explicitly states the basis of the ruling is arrogance, pride, boastfulness. Right, that if that is the factor that is contributing to it, it is done as an elaborate display of luxury, or uh, an elaborate display of glamour, or something of that nature, to show off. Right, so that becomes the illa of the hukum. So, basically, the Prophet ﷺ turned it into more of not a standardized ruling, but more of an individual call. And most issues, most issues pertaining to personal conduct, such as clothing and things like that are usually in the realm of an individual personal call. That this is something each person has to kind of consider themselves. And has to kind of police themselves. You know, not things that are necessarily policed at a state level or governed. That these are more individual responsibilities are given. And then the other question that he's asking about is what about the issue of there being um, pictures or faces or things like that on one's clothing. Um, there are, so in and of itself, as a form of clothing, it is permissible. It's not prohibited. Because there were some sahaba who sometimes would have certain drawings and things like that, and they would have a sheet or a garment that had certain drawings on it. He didn't prohibit them from wearing it itself. The prohibition was more so in the fact of praying with things like this, while having things like that on. That was more of what the Prophet ﷺ reprimanded, was praying with something like this hanging in front of you, or it being on your person, or it being the, the, the prayer rug that you put down. The prohibition was more in that area. And the reason for it, some people also then further delve into it, saying that, well, that was because a lot of times people would engage in shirk, and this was like a shirk-like practice, that they would pray worship with the picture of the idol on them, or a picture of the idol in front of them, or something like that. That obviously a Muslim would not be doing that, so then the ruling wouldn't apply. It's not only just simply that, it is also so that somebody else could never misunderstand that the observer, somebody watching a Muslim pray, could never understand that this is somehow a part of our ritual. When they see us pray and they, they understand that the sujood is something that sticks out, this is an obvious part of their prayer, that seeing us, they don't get the idea, they don't get the impression that having a picture or something like that would somehow be involved within our prayer. So that's why generally speaking, it's for the purpose of salah. Salah is only five times a day. There are only a few raka'at. It's better not to negotiate so much with the rules of prayer itself. So abstain from having something like that on while praying. But generally as a form of clothing, it is not uh, prohibited. Wallahu alam. Sister? <sighs> All right. <laughs> Sister's question obviously is it okay to use leather products that are sold normally in stores here? It really just depends. Based off of the opinion, um, and the opinion of Abu Hanifa rahimahullah ta'ala on the issue, where he says tanning of, you know, the processing of the skin of an animal does make it permissible even if it was not slaughtered properly. The, the processing itself makes it permissible. Does have quite a bit of evidence to it from the companions, from the Sahaba as well. And it also practically just makes the most sense, especially for Muslims in different places, particularly as minorities. The only problem that does come up, and it's a very serious issue, it's not a nitpicking issue. We have very, very few restrictions, prohibitions. Al-Aslu, this is one thing I forgot to mention. Al-Aslu fi al-ashya al-ibaha. The general rule for things like clothing and hair and 
type of shoes or socks and the 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 general ruling the default ruling is permissibility most things are permissible very few restrictions but we should take those restrictions seriously um, and one of those restrictions is that the khinzir a pig is something that is najisul ain it is in an, in it's something that is just completely impermissible and taking benefit from it in its form, in any, uh, it, it's something that comes from it, in any way, shape, or form is not permissible. So therefore, if there are leather products that are uh, made from pig skin, then they will not be permissible. <laughs> yeah. Actually, so... <laughs> Actually, you're gonna make me expose my overindulgence into the topic. So I researched the topic. <laughs> and actually they don't make footballs from pigskin anymore. Takbir. <laughs> Takbir. <laughs> All right, we're calling it a night at that. I'm <laughs> ending on a good note, inshallah. And so if there are any other questions, of course, I'll continue to take them throughout the rest of the week, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.